Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. We have two guests on today, Chris DeLeon and Amber Donat. Uh, they are two leaders of a huge urban farming project in southwest Fresno. The Yosemite Village Permacultural Community Garden and Urban Farm Incubator uh, is a 7.5-acre fresh food production uh, space planned and designed to collaboratively enlist and serve the residents of southwest Fresno an important community struggling with extreme poverty and health disparities and significant environmental injustice and food hardship. I'm so excited to talk with them about this topic. It's something that's near and dear to my heart, which is growing our food. Please support this podcast by either making a financial contribution through Patreon or by giving us a rating and a review. It really goes a long way to help the success and sustainability of this podcast. Now, let's meet Chris and Amber, and Baker will take us there. Where do you two like to eat in Fresno? One of my uh, favorite places is right down the street um, on the corner of Mackenzie and Blackstone. It's called Don Tacha. Um, it's this amazing little Mexican um, restaurant that has really great dollar tacos, 99 cent tacos. Um, and I can walk there from my house whenever I'm hungry for dinner, take my dog or something. It's really nice. They have an outdoor patio. Um, I really like that place, and I really like Mediterranean Grill also. I think that place is so good, and they have one of the best garlic sauces in Fresno. Um, yeah, that's what I like to do. Um, I, I really like to explore like new places, but I, whenever I'm in to get a quick bite, I like to go to um El Patio or Irene's in Tower District. I live in Tower District, so it's pretty close by. I like to just walk over there. Um, but a place that I'm always down to go to is a food truck called uh called Taco Pinto. Um it's on Shaw and West usually. Um and the food is really good. They add like the sauce to the burritos. Um that's it's phenomenal. It's great. What kind of sauce? What are we talking about? I'm not sure like what it is on the sauce. It's their secret sauce. I don't know like what it is, but it tastes very like creamy. Um, it has like a good spice to it. Um, yeah, but it's it's like, it's not the traditional like veggie burritos. I, I, I'm vegetarian, so I tend to have a lot of veggie burritos <laughs> whenever I go out to Mexican places. Yeah. So I, I have a question about veggie burritos specifically, and this is a really, uh, you know, this is a big concern of mine as uh, someone that's trying to be more plant-based. Veggie burritos are not creative. I feel like they're relegated to like the sad corner of the menu. Um, and I just don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously you can have kind of a fajita style veggie burrito with, you know, kind of uh, bell peppers and different things. Uh, but it's just, it's, I don't, I'm, ne I'm never excited to order a veggie burrito. I'm just never excited. And I don't know what that is. Um, it's probably my fault. But uh, what what is what is a good veggie burrito for you? Well, for me, it has to have beans, rice, um, pico de gallo always, pico de gallo, um, a little bit of sour cream, um, and something that they add is that they actually like. I think they fry a little bit of potatoes, um, and then they add it into, and then their secret sauce, and it just gives it that extra like. It's it's different, you know. It's different than the typical veggie burritos. You know? 
Yeah, I was talking about this with the Ashleys from uh, Eat Figs, Not Pigs. And we were talking about just like having sustenance, you know, as a vegan. And I was a vegan for a long time um, until I became more flexible. Um, and, you know, I just ate so many potatoes. It was just like potato paradise for me. And like lots of oil. And it was just like, that was how I got my sustenance. So as a vegetarian, Christopher, how do you, how do you find your sustenance? What, what is the thing that does it for you? I don't know. I just eat a lot of veggies and beans. <laughs> beans, maybe. I just do what I've been doing my whole life as a Mexican, uh, like Mexican based diet, except without meat. And yeah, and I teach nutrition and I was like, oh, like the beans already had a protein. Like mom, I was fine without eating meat. See? <laughs> So you both work in the community garden world, and um, I, I just want to talk about vegetables for a little while. Um, I feel like in the world there are vegetable, you know, like everything, there are trends with vegetables, right? Um, for a long time, it was kale. I had one of those stupid T-shirts, that, you know, the Yale kale shirts. Um, and it was, you know, was, kale's a very nutritious leafy green. It's great. Um, but, you know, sometimes things can get, certain vegetables get, you know, they're given too much power, like they're magic elixirs that are going to fix your health. Um, so I guess my question is to you guys, uh, what, what are some overrated vegetables, like the ones that just people eat, not, not too much of, but like the, they're the ones that people cook with or eat often enough. And then what are the neglected vegetables out there that you guys see? What are the vegetables that maybe lack that effective marketing team to really bring them to American kitchens? I was, uh, Chris, you go first. Yeah. Well, I was going to mention, so the overrated one that I, that I had was actually potato. <laughs> because, it, you know, just traditionally, like, American foods just have potato in everything. Potato and corn are, like, starchy, like, using everything, lots of store stuff. Uh, but I was thinking about saying kale, too, as, like, a, the overrated health, health one. Um, but one that I'm really hyped about, um, is rainbow chard or chard. I just love how pretty it is. Um, it looks great. It can be a perennial if you take care of it. Um, and I, I've been eating it like year round since I first like found out about chard and it's so easy to grow. So Amber, before you jump in with yours, I just want to dig into this rainbow chard business because to be honest, it tastes like carpet to me or like, um, or just plain dirt. So how do you, how do you eat rainbow chard? Yeah, so when they're little, you can put them in salads and they're not, they don't have like such a tart flavor or like such a spice flavor. Um, and then when they're larger, I stir fry them or I add them into like any other times that I add. Like, but if you're not going to cook it, just use the little ones. But if you're going to cook it and add flavors, you can use the really big one. Okay, what the hell? Because Whole Foods sells the giant ones, right? I mean, it's pretty exclusively, it's like they're almost on a negative campaign to convince us not to eat rainbow chard. <laughs> Yeah, if you buy like a pre uh, like a prepackaged salad, sometimes they'll have them. Like they have the little red stems; they're in there. Um, yeah, so the little ones are great for salads or just eating raw. But if you're interesting, eating, yeah, you got to cook the big ones. I did not know. I did not know that you. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. I mean, is that Christopher? Is that universal with vegetables? Like that you can eat vegetables at different like harvest them at different periods for different like goals. I guess. Yeah, I think so. Usually with leafy greens, at least when they're smaller, they're like, they tend to not have as much flavor and you can just eat them in like salads or little things like that. So my microgreens are really big too. 
Um, they don't have a lot of okay. That's, that's mm-hmm. a good point. So I grew microgreens in my garden in my backyard and I just let them grow like out of control. And they're macro greens. They are enormous. Like I had no idea what to do with them. And I, you know, I just had to end up just pulling them out because they, I took like a bite of one of them. And it was just like, oh, you yeah. know, it was just, it was just so, it was so bad. So, um, but anyway, Amber, what, what are some overrated and underrated vegetables for you? Yeah. So like you mentioned, um, I had kale on my overrated list. Uh, I think it's a, it's a nutritious um, plant that has lots of good hype around it, maybe a little too much. Um, like Chris was saying, chard has a lot of good nutritious properties also, maybe not as hyped up as much. Um, okay, it's not necessarily a vegetable, but I think red delicious apples are the most overrated thing in the entire world. I don't think they're delicious at all. Uh, they just taste like I'm eating chocolate or grain. And there's so many more delicious apples out there that I just had to I had to mention that um, as an honorable mention for Absolutely. And I don't things. know if it's just the, you know, if just, it feels like maybe it's that we know what a good, a better apple tastes like now, but it feels like when I was a kid, red delicious apples were just what they were. They were just apples. And then over time we discovered like envy apples and we discovered, you know, uh, I'm drinking uh, what's honey crisp apple cider right now. It's just like, Oh, like the world is so much more expansive. So um, in terms of, yeah, uh, underrated vegetables. What are what are what are some vegetables that you think deserve more of the spotlight? So I'm a really big fan of root vegetables. I feel like they don't get in the spotlight a lot. Maybe carrots do, um, but I love beets. I think there's so many different uh, like unique designs. So there's like the bullseye beet. There's the blood or the bull's blood beet, and then like the one with the golden beet. Um, yeah, I really like turnips, um, making like a mashed potato, but with turnips is so good. Um, I'm a big fan of jicama. I think that is like the best summer snack. You're just like chewing on water basically is what it tastes like to me. Um, and kohlrabi also, it's like a German turnip is another name for it. Not a root vegetable, but it's a brassica. Um, and it kind of tastes like just the stem of a broccoli to me and you can roast it um you can uh chop it up and put it in coleslaw you can do i'm going to give you guys the opportunity to make your respective pitches um and i want to just preface the question by saying um you know community gardens have have you know they they've they've been something that's you know been building in steam but i feel like they've kind of gone out of like the kind of like the, ooh, these are cool new. And now they're just like a a good thing. You know, they're less like, ooh, this is a fun new thing that we're going to do. And now it's just like, oh yeah, that's a good thing. But it doesn't have that same kind of like nouveau steam to it. So I guess what my question would be to you guys is um, make the case for why uh, each neighborhood needs a community garden. Um, And then alternatively, um, why, why don't we just try to get as many like healthy grocery stores in neighborhoods instead. Like what, what do community gardens provide that a healthy grocery store might not, if that makes sense. So I think um, healthy grocery stores, I'm going to answer that part first. I think there's 
like what we see as healthy versus what is nutritious and beneficial to us. Um, and so maybe there's like a sprouts around or maybe it's the corner store if you live in a food desert. And so those kinds of healthy options vary. Um, so I just watched Kiss the Ground, uh, the new documentary on how to combat climate change and regenerative agriculture. And it talks a lot about uh, the use of pesticides in our farming in America. Um, and that's just something that's been on my mind a lot lately is like this strawberry is a healthy option, but it might be doused in pesticides that are killing us and causing cancer and doing all these harmful things to our population. Um, and so that's something that you are in control of with a community garden. Um, it's something that we have um, the option to be mindful of what we're doing. And so we can choose what we go um, with, with our produce, with what we're planting, um, how we feed our soil, what we put into it. We can like track the nutrients of what plants will give and take in community gardens. Um, and that's just like the agricultural side of it, right? And so there's a, a quote by a phenomenal uh, theologian and ag agronomist. <laughs> what is the agri agriculturist? Um, Agronomist, right? Agrarian. Yeah, agrarian uh, guy. He's awesome. I love him. Wendell Berry. And he has a quote that says, to cherish what remains of the earth and to foster its renewal is our only legitimate hope of survival. And so with the issue with climate change and with all of these like uh, environmental issues, carbon sequestration um, is what we have to go towards in a regenerative uh, society and future. And so the soil is what captures carbon the highest amounts um, in the best ways. And so being able to teach people these regenerative um, practices rather than just saying eat healthy I think is something that we have to start doing. Yeah, I, I actually really love that. Uh, <clears throat> so Amber and I, we work really well as a team um, because Amber knows a lot about regenerative agriculture um, and that's like her background too. Um, and she has a lot, a lot of knowledge in that. And I, I tend to focus on like public health aspects too um, because that's, that's kind of like where I found gardening is on the public health benefits of gardening. Um, and so, some of the things that we've definitely heard from our gardeners uh, at like the different community gardens in Fresno are that they also provide like not only are they able to grow like organic produce, fresh produce, it's cheaper because then then buying it at the store, they can just grow it themselves. Um, but it also gives them a different space outside of home to like go to and relieve stress. Right. So sometimes we like to go outside and go for a walk um, or go to the lake or go hiking. It gives us a different place to just kind of like forget about our issues, get really like get some exercise um, and just relax a little bit. Um, and so it gives a lot of our gardeners that just like a second place from home that they can just go to and exercise. Um, it also gives them a space to grow cultural vegetables. So they may have some vegetables that they grew up culturally and they can't find at local grocery stores. Um, so a lot of our, our gardeners that we have at, um, at some of the gardens that we manage through Fresno Metro um, being like our peach garden and our Al Ratko community gardens, those are predominantly Hmong families that grow Hmong vegetables that you can't find at local grocery stores. And so they trade seed with each other, they save seed, and they're able to grow these foods that they're used to eating with and cooking with. 
Um, so I think there's there's a lot more benefits that than, you know, that like that really help a community. Um, and then it also helps to bring them together too. Like they see each other, they know how to grow their own food. It builds community resilience and also individual resilience as well. Um, and then the the thing about grocery stores too is sometimes like you just can't get a grocery store in your neighborhood. Like uh, I'm gonna focus a little bit on specifically in Southwest Fresno. Um, so Southwest Fresno, as we know, or you've probably heard of, um, has a history of disinvestment due to redlining, right? It's seen as troubled areas um, because of the racially diverse neighborhoods. It's harder to get loans for homes and businesses there. It's harder to get investments for the community. Um, so instead of trying to convince investors, like you can make money here, like open a store here where you can make money for people, why not just cut out the middleman and just grow food directly um, and feed the community that way, right? Give people the power to grow their own food, teach people how to start their own farming businesses and just start selling the food directly in a farm stand or something like that. Um, yeah, so that's my little spiel on community gardens. <laughs> yeah, I got a few follow-up questions, which is what are some Hmong vegetables that I don't know about that I can't find in a store? Okay, I know how to describe them, but I honestly don't know how to say it. <laughs> That's fine. Don't just describe them. <laughs> so there's one, there's one that looks like, I think it's like taro root, and then the vegetable, uh, the part that gets eaten is like the, it's like kind of like celery, you eat the, the stem. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the ones that I've talked to some gardeners about, and then there's also this like super bright orange one too. Um, that grows in like little bushes. They almost look like tomatoes, but they're it's, like bright and orange. What was that ever? Yeah, it's super, it's super bitter. Like when you eat it at first, if it's, if it's overripe or if it's underripe, I don't know. I've personally, I don't think I've had it. Um, but it, when it is overripe, I believe it gets so bright and it kind of looks like, um, almost like an Armenian cucumber, but more leafy, and yeah, it has these crazy vivid colors on it. It's so cool. There's also, I want to mention, a lot of the Hmong farmers at uh, the Aradka Garden um, and at the Butler Garden are growing rice in Fresno without using flood irrigation, which is incredible. Um, they're able to do it in the Central Valley without flooding. Like, it's they're the smartest people. Yeah. That's fascinating. So how, how are they doing that? Yeah, they focus on, on soil health so just... and compost as well. Um, and try to really focus on like the soil retaining as much moisture as they can. And then we also uh, require all of our gardeners to use drip irrigation as well. Wow. That's wild. I mean. So it's on a, it's on a drip. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I interrupted you. I, I, um, yeah, I just, I, that's, that's, that's interesting. Cause I, I think, you know, I guess I, I tend to look at food problems from a macro lens. Right. And like, when I think about food problems, I think about like, like our global health system. I think about our, you know, our ag subsidies for corn. Like I think about all those, like big problems, but I don't often conceptualize it in the local level. And it sounds like uh, basically what you're describing is there is a problem 
which is a lack of food at grocery stores that's healthy. And then the community is just solving it. They're not giving a shit about like regular, I mean, they're, they just don't, they're just going to solve it. Right. And I think, I think that's, you know, something that I wish was more universal in cities is that if people saw a problem, instead of going to complain about a city council, they just, they, they, they just solved it. Right. And so I think that's a neat thing. And I had no idea that there was a subculture of like seed trading and growing vegetables that you can't find at grocery stores. And I think it's such a, a neat thing for people to hear about. Um, I, so I, I'm very curious about both of your journeys to gardening and like how, how that started for both of you. Um, can you, do you mind sharing your stories about, you know, your garden conversions stories, your testimonies of gardening? <laughs> um, I can go first. Um, so I, I went to school in, in, I lived in Southeast Fresno and went to school in Southwest Fresno. Um, and so I went to, to Edison High School. Um, and when I was in Edison, I joined a group called the Youth Leadership Institute. Uh, where we started looking at our community health um, and what like ideal communities look like, um, norms that are happening in different communities and then things that our communities tend to lack. So I really got to look at like Southeast and Southwest Fresno. Um, and that's when I started to like, that's when I was like, I don't know, shown like the, the like what food deserts were and food insecurity um, and the lack of food access. Um, and we, we went through the route of like, okay, like there isn't, grocery stores near our school, like we've noticed that we talk to people and they need more access to grocery stores. So we were like, why isn't there grocery stores? And so we started kind of exploring all of that on like redlining, uh, the historical disinvestment that happened in Southwest Fresno, current issues uh, with land use in Southwest Fresno. So we were like, okay, well, like let's, let's try to encourage healthy eating in different ways. But I was like, why don't we just like grow the food? Like, I, I know that's what people do. Like, we can just grow it. Um, and that seemed like a good idea. So I started, like, a garden club at Edison. And I was like, I'm just going to start a big, like, garden at Edison. And then we can feed people that way. Like, if anyone wants food, they can come get them. Um, and then we, like, got an area approved. But then I had to, like, to get funds, I was recommended to write a grant because we didn't have any funds for our club. Um, and I tried to write a grant in high school, didn't quite know how to figure it out. So we just focused on like beautification and I just did my best to learn like about gardening and like connect with other people. Um, and so when I went to FPU, I studied environmental studies cause I was really interested in the relationship that we have with people, um, and with our environments and the planet and the way that we affect the planet and the way that the planet affects us back. Um, and that also, like, in all of my studies, it comes back to, like, our relationship with food, um, the way that we see our food, right? Like, uh, especially in the Central Valley with air pollution because of uh, agriculture, uh, with water pollution because of runoff, with, like, asthma, the high asthma rates that we have, it directly affects healthcare, um, And, like, our, like, pesticide intake, cancer, like, all of our health inequities are caused by, like, our disconnect with food. Um, so that was really like a big, like that really solidified in me that I was like, okay, I'm going to work on this. Um, so after, after college, I started working with the, the, the CalFresh Healthy Living Program. So I would teach nutrition 
and garden education for elementary schools. Um, I was teaching around, around Fresno State and also Southwest Fresno um, in some of the elementary schools there. Um, and then I learned a lot by partnering with Master Gardeners through the UC Master Gardener program. Um, we taught uh, a class through the rescue mission too for like homeless women that were at the, the Rescue the Children, um, which is a place that brings in women that are at risk and their children too and helps care for them. Um, so I taught like a nutrition and, uh, and gardening class with them where we focused on like meditation um, and being present and then growing our own food um, and just like working through our issues through like our physical bodies. Uh, yeah, and so I did that for like three years and then I found out that Fresno Metro Ministry was doing a community garden in Southwest Fresno and they were also hiring. And I was like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to finish the garden that I wanted to do at the beginning. So uh, I connected awesome. with them. I told them what I was doing. I told them like how I envisioned it. And then they were like, okay, yeah, like that seems like a good fit for the project that we're trying to do here. So, you know, and I think um, I'm just going to jump in Amber before you go. I think that um, that's the story that I think we need more of in the Central Valley, which is, um, you know, people, you know, maybe leaving for a while, but coming back and investing back into the community. You know, I mean, we can talk about brain drain or we can talk about, you know, I mean, you guys probably know those people from high school that left or whatever and didn't come back. Um, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but like, uh, it's just, it's so wonderful when you hear stories like yours of someone seeing a problem and literally coming back to fix the problem uh, that you saw as a kid in high school, which, I mean, we can talk about using that kind of as an issue in high school and how far ahead of that most of, you know, my middle and high school students have been in high school. Um, but, you know, that's a whole different subject. All right. So, Amber, can you tell your uh, gardening uh, testimony, your story? Sure. So I grew up in Clovis, in the country area. Um, I grew up on a little homestead out there. Um, my grandpa um, started the horticulture program at Fresno City College. He built the greenhouse and the pond out there hand with his friend. So I kind of grew up with him as a biologist and my mom as a homesteader and we raised our own livestock and had I guess a little farm um, and so grew up with that, doing 4-H um, when I was young I would go and volunteer with food distributions with my aunt downtown now in the neighborhood that I live in um, and yeah similar to Chris saw the disparities and the, um, the drastic changes between uh, Clovis and Fresno and so when I was in high school, um, I went on an agricultural trip to Thailand um, and we worked with um, Lana Coffee. It's a local um, company here that does uh, coffee and fair trade and things like that. Um, and so we did some stuff with uh, the coffee tree and farmers there. Um, and I, I saw, uh, just a sense of injustice um, across the globe and also in my in my own backyard. And so I, I decided um, for college that I'm going to see social justice. And so I looked for a college, ended up in Tennessee, um, and I was right in Nashville studying social and environmental justice. Um, and so when I was there, I worked on an urban farm for about 
four years, the whole time I was there, um, in one of the biggest food deserts in Nashville. Um, and we did farm camps with um, showing kids, high school camps, middle schoolers, um, elementary schools, all about urban farming and how we can do this in the city and bring fresh, healthy options um, to communities that are experiencing uh, food insecurity. And so while I was in college, um, I was fortunate to be able to go uh, to Senegal and implement a permaculture design that our class um, helped create in, in partnership with um, some Senegalese farmers um, that we had a connection to with the school. And so I got to see how co-ops work there. Um, I was able, yeah, just to see how, um, how we can implement this uh, farming practice all over the world and in any environment. Um, I was also able to go to the Philippines and learn from uh, heirloom rice farmers, hill tribes area, um, and um, And after all of those experiences, came back to Nashville um, and got my permaculture design certificate. Um, yeah, graduated and checked now. Um, and I wanted to start a farm. <laughs> that was my goal. Um, I was just doing odd jobs until I could find a pathway that um, fit that desire. Um, I saw a job listing at Fresno Metro Ministry, where I work now with Chris, um, and it was actually for a completely different position. Uh, it was for the Better Stone um, project we have going there, which is an awesome position, totally not my field, but I loved the organization and I loved um, the people that were there and so I just wanted to be involved somehow. So it might be actually decided that I'm not a Better Stone person, I'm an eGardens person and I need to be on this project. And so that's how Chris and I started to work together and how we were building the first urban farm and permaculture training center in valley so that's so awesome and i will start with you amber and you can you can pipe in chris if there are certain things that like you know you and you've enjoyed that you learned about it so what is permaculture and i want to start this by saying i have the bible right here um it's i've had that book since i just want to say this i've had that book since 07 um and that's sat wow. at my bedside for 14 years um and I remember when I started doing learning about permaculture uh, in college in San Francisco, I went to build a hut out of poop. And I was like, I want to be part of whatever builds huts out of poop. Um, and it's yeah. one of those like really niche, like gardening subcultures that is just so cool. So if you could explain the principle, like what is it? Um, mm -hmm. And then just talk about, why, like, like, is it, I, I think there's permaculture has this kind of like, uh, it's a hippie woo woo thing. Um, but mm -hmm. I, but it's not, it's just, it's a design. It's, it's design. It's how you, des it's how you design a garden. So anyway, I don't want to take your steam. So just what is permaculture no. and then why is it so cool? Yeah. So permaculture comes from the root of the two words, permanent agriculture. Um, and essentially, it's taking three core principles, um, earth care, fair share, and people share, and 
surrounding those three principles, it has 12 other principles that basically is just how to be a good steward of the land, the earth, and what you've got. Um, it sounds really complicated and a little bit intimidating. I know when we put that word out there for gardeners, they're like, I don't know how to do this. I'm just a farmer. But a lot of it, I think people are already doing like the basics of it in like community gardens um, and then just aren't aware of it. And so um, for me, I think it's a, a way that we can break down the key components towards a regenerative agriculture and a regenerative future. Um, and so there's what I've learned about was there's environmental permaculture, there's social permaculture, the care for people, um, how we can use these principles towards community practices and how we can use it towards environmental. And that's really what it's about is bringing these two things together. Um, so there's 12 different principles. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Go yeah, yeah, ahead. yeah. I was just going to ask a follow-up. Mm -hmm. Like if you could give some examples of like traditional gardening versus permaculture. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So traditional farming you see a lot of monoculture. Mono means one. There's usually an industrial, traditional, conventional farming. You see soy on a field of like 200 acres or whatever. Um, so permaculture is taking all of these smaller ecosystems and how you can bring those together to create a functioning um, environment that is beneficial to every aspect of it. And so you're building soil, you're um, fixing the soil, you're sequestering carbon, you're um, putting plants next to each other that can give and take um, what they need and you don't have to provide as much input and you're getting maximum output because you have so much biodiversity. Um, and so there's 12 different principles I'll read through them really quick because I have them in front of me and I think they're really important. So observe and interact, catch and store energy, obtain a yield, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. Use and value renewable resources and services, produce no waste. Design from patterns to details, integrate rather than segregate. Use small and slow solutions, use and value diversity, use edges and value the marginal, creatively use and respond to change. Um, and so all of those, like I said earlier, can be used in farming and also in our social lives. Um, and it's just, it's this blueprint for how to get uh, an equitable society and an equitable farming and uh, agricultural and environmental system in play. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of, it's, you're right. It's, 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 it's a, it's a philosophy too. You know, and I think if you break down the core philosophy of what it is, is, is using the natural, uh, using the environment in the way it's supposed to be used. You know, I, I, um, one of the, one of my favorite, I mean, if you want to go on a YouTube permaculture spiral, you can go real deep, let me tell you. Um, and there's one of, I mean, there's two that stick out to me. One is, uh, this guy uh, named, I think his name is Jeff Lawson. And he basically goes to the desert mm -hmm. and like, you know, creates, um, you know, these berms that is basically just like areas where water collects and then he creates these oases out in the middle of the desert. Totally wild. Mm -hmm. um, but the one that I think you should watch to start is this one, and we'll link to it in the, the, the show notes below, is um, it's called Miracle Farms. And it's this Canadian uh, farm uh, where this guy kind of talked about being a monoculture a farmer for a long time and having to just, and just 
overloaded with pests, overloaded. Um, and mm-hmm. not that pests are bad. I mean, we use the term pests to describe animals that get in our way, basically, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Or insects. I guess insects are an animal. I don't know. Um, in any case, he started planting different kinds of fruit trees every other, every other tree. Um, and then he just watched as his farm exploded in growth without him having to do really anything. Um, and I, I think it's just such a cool concept. There's, um, there's a great documentary about this farm, big little farm or little big farm or something like that, mm-hmm. um, about this farm that's in uh, Ventura County. Um, and they basically took, um, this place that was just like desert basically and brought it back to life by, you know, f- figuring out how the ecosystem naturally worked and then building around that. Um, and so it's, yeah, I, I think it's a philosophy that has reached beyond just, you know, gardening necessarily. Um, it's something it's to respect, to respect our, all of our unique contributions to the world and see balance as giving everyone their turn. Um, and speaking of uh, contributions and, and, and com- respecting communities uniqueness, how, um, what are some, Christopher, some like public, can you take a little bit more into the kind of the public health concerns in Fresno um, and, and talk about, you know, food deserts and certain places in Fresno that are lacking uh, those grocery stores and where those places are? Yeah. So I think the biggest one is in Southwest Fresno. Um, so that's directly where our Yosemite Village project is. Um, and I, I wanted to just jump back a little bit uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Absolutely. and hit on, on the permaculture practices because I've also been learning a lot of permaculture, especially from when Amber came on uh, to the team. I knew a lot about gardening and public health and how that affected people. Um, and then Amber brought a lot of knowledge on permaculture. And then as we started to like look at the Hmong gardeners at our community gardens, we were like, oh my God, they're already doing a lot of these things. Um, so they were like, instead of just like, you know, you have a plot and they want to grow like corn, they don't just plant one whole r- crop of like corn and then they're going to need compost, they're going to need fertilizers because corn suck up a lot, right? Um, and so then you're going to have to add them in and then Later on, when you take it off, then everything's going to kind of like, you know, it takes a lot of input. And then once the corn's done, then you pick up the corn that you're going to eat. But then all you're left is like these stalks. And then you have to go and throw that away. So you have to bring in an external thing, right? Like the compost, fertilizers, lots of chemicals. You have to bring that in. Then you have all these pests. You have to put pesticides on it so that they don't all get the same pests because they're all right next to each other and there's nothing breaking it. There's... It's just that, that one pest, it's like, oh, I love corn. This is perfect. They're all together, lined up for me. I got it. Um, and then all of that waste at the end, then you have to put in a green waste and have it shipped somewhere else. Jeez. Uh, and what we've noticed with, with the gardeners is that they started planting like companion plants. They started, they already do like the three sisters gardens where there's other plants planted next to it, like beans or peas that feed the soil as the corn's growing and that climb on the corn. And so they work together. And then you plant something like a squash or um, a cucumber or pumpkin that spreads out and covers the ground so that there's more room for beneficial insects. There's more weeds that are covered so you don't have to add more pesticides and herbicides. And then also at the end, what they do is they just take all of that stuff, chop it down really finely, and they use it as mulch. They just put it on top and that helps weeds not grow again. Um, And so they already use it. We were like, oh, they're already like, 
they're already looking at their inputs and outputs. Like they don't want to buy a lot of stuff in the store. They don't want to be dependent on these chemicals. And they also like, we don't have a lot of storage area for their green waste. And so they just reuse it in the garden. So let me ask you both this then. Do you think, because my, the biggest critique that I hear is that this stuff is not scalable, you know, like how do you, how do you do permaculture on a scale that, uh, you can feed a society. And I, you know, I, before, before you answer that, I agree about the corn, you know, I mean, people don't know this, that, um, before, you know, here's history teacher coming out, uh, before, uh, Europeans arrived, um, some of the largest civilizations, uh, in North of central Mexico were in Miss in the Mississippi Delta. Um, and they depended on corn for a long time and developed monoculture practices. And then it collapsed their society. Um, 11, 11, 11, 11th century AD, they, the society collapsed because the corn had depleted the soil so much that they couldn't grow anything. And I, you know, we grow more corn than anything, which mm-hmm. goes to, goes to explain why, you know, why we're de- depleting our topsoil. But anyway, that's a whole different thing. Why don't you guys just talk about what you think, uh, to respond to that critique that, that permaculture and practices like this are just not scalable. So I'm going to refer back to the Kiss the Ground documentary that just came out on Netflix. Everyone should go check it out. Um, really incredible documentary about how to combat climate change through regenerative agriculture. They touch on this question in that um, with a farmer who lost his um, financial assistance from the banks. Um, for more inputs from Monsanto that is harsh chemicals causing cancer and millions of people. Um, and so he had to go back to a regenerative type of farming because that's, he didn't have money for all of these high cost inputs. Um, and so what he did is he looked at how he can integrate um, his livestock, his um, like grazing, his cover crop, um, and his um, his produce for whatever was the high market um, produce right now. And so I think what a lot of people aren't aware of is that the government subsidizes a significant amount of what our farmers in America are growing. And they're guaranteed a price before they even grow anything for what they're going to grow, soy, corn, and that's going to feed um, livestock that is stuck on uh, a confined animal feedlot operation or CAFO. Um, and so that's where, that's why we're seeing so much corn and soy and all of these other um, grains and things being produced at such high rates. Um, but once you take away the government subsidies, you know, they're not worth anything because it's just, that's not what people necessarily are buying it's going to feed the animals that people are eating that is not a sustainable option for us right now um and so once you take all of those factors into consideration you realize we can do this thing on a large scale um it's just going to take time to replenish the destruction that we've caused to our land um it's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take education. And I don't think a lot of people are ready for that conversation yet. Um, even though it needed to happen, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, yeah. It's definitely possible. Yeah. Amber, I totally agree with you too on the educational opportunities too. Uh, that's something that some of our partners that we've been 
working with too, that's like a feedback that people get. Like you go to a farmer and you're like, oh, your farm isn't sustainable. This is what it's doing to the air, to the quality of the water, to public health. But they're like, okay, like then what do I do? Like how do I transition from this to something that that is going to be better, right? Because they also already recognize that there's an increased cost of pesticides. They're, they're Dependency on pesticides is increasing. They have large dependency on machinery. They don't want to really be disking the soil as much as they do because it costs tons of money. And they recognize all the input that they're putting, but there is no alternatives, no like educational opportunities. Or and there's also isn't really any like government incentives to move away from that kind of practice into something better, right? So like in the automobile industry, we see like oh, there's always like new, new incentives on moving just a little bit cleaner, a little bit better, right? And now we've just signed like, now we're finally going to do just electric. But in the, in the farming industry, that's not a thing, right? We don't have any like, if you start focusing on your soils, if you improve your organic matters by this much, if you install, um, I don't know, like more native plants that'll help with your pests, like there's no incentives to moving to a more regenerative practice on agriculture. What is your guys' relationship to the farming industry around here? I mean, have you had a positive interactions, negative interactions? How, cause I mean, it's, you know, we have a huge ag industry around here. That's really, I mean, it's intensely monoculture. Um, how have, have you had interactions with local farmers? And I mean, I, you're kind of describing like a, a, a typical encounter, but like, like how, do they, do they just kind of view you guys as hippies that are like, oh, this is something we do, you know what I mean? Like, how, how, are, how are you viewed, if, if at all? So we've... I'll say, yeah, go oh, ahead, Chris. Sorry. Yeah, so, so far, um, we've actually had, uh, when we first set up Yovil, like the Yosemite Village Community Garden and Farm in Southwest Fresno, um, we actually had to till the ground because it was all like, it's just a big seven and a half acre lot, um, like an empty lot, just full of weeds. Um, and so we had, um, what was the group called? Beloyan Farm. No, so Beloyan Farms did come out. And then there was another group that did it because our design process took like two years to get it approved by the city. Um, so we've been working a lot with the city as well. But there was, um, I think it was like Agri Agriland or something. Um, it was a big farming uh, organization. Um, and I think like we when we meet other like farmers or people that are practicing like traditional farming practices it's not really about like saying like you're not doing this right this is like you got to do what we're doing because if someone came in to amber and i and we're like okay cool like how do i transition like it would be a, a huge task for us to do that um and i don't think we're ready there yet and so i think it's understanding that both parties are trying to produce food for people to eat right we're all trying to feed the world um, and then trying to find those middle ground, like how do we work together? Uh, for sure, when we, if we're gonna have a, a farm training program uh, or, or like a urban farmer training program um, on our site where we try to teach people how to start like urban farms that focus on regenerative agriculture um, and try to create those models. Uh, we're working with another group, um, the Center for Agroecology. They're trying to start an, uh, an agroecology center in Tulare. Uh, which also focuses on regenerative agriculture to train people on how to how to transition right how to um, how to transition from something that's taking a lot of your costs um, and your time um, and causing a lot of damage to your soil and your land and how to move to something that's going to help you keep your land for a longer time 
that isn't going to take as much input. Um, so I think it's just it's working with, not working against, right? Because there's already a lot of divisiveness um, in our communities, and I think the more we can work together, the better. And I'll just add, also, I don't think we're trying to feed the world. I think we're just trying to feed Southwest Fresno right now. That's kind of a, a big slogan for, uh, you know, Monsanto and everything. You know, and we don't need to feed the world. The world can feed itself. And there are millions of people that are feeding themselves. And it's not something that is our job in Fresno to do um, when people can grow strawberries on their own in Costa Rica or uh, the Middle East or wherever, you know, um, we don't have to be shipping it all out. But I will say that I had a experience when I mentioned what I was doing um, and what we're doing with Yeovil um, to one of my Fresno State Ag Business friends. Um, and I saw her and I told her like, oh, I have this great opportunity. We're starting in Southwest Fresno. We're starting the biggest urban farm, um, seven and a half acres, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, <laughs> oh yeah so when does your little farm start <laughs> like to me to us this is a huge task like we're out there hand watering plants across seven and a half acres for the first like three months before we could get our drip irrigation installed and to to traditional conventional farmers you know this is this is pennies this is nothing you know and so just that mindset of how we can like chris was saying work together and also recognize our differences but inspire hopefully that we can do this on what we consider a large scale. All right, let's uh, let's finish this by talking about books and documentaries. Amber, you already mentioned one, uh, but do you have some book recommend? I mean, other than Gaia's Garden, which you know is where everyone should start, um, do you have some mm -hmm. book and documentary recommendations you'd make for people wanting to look into either regenerative farming or agriculture or whatever. Yes, I have a whole bookshelf right next to me. I'm going to go look at it and remind myself. But the first one that I is one of my favorite books ever is The Soil and Health by Sir uh, Albert, what's his name? Sir Isaac Howard? Sir Albert Hauser, that's his name. Um, incredible book about soil health and how we can transform uh, the soil health system that we have right now. It has an introduction by Wendell Berry. Um, anything and everything by Wendell Berry is incredible. Um, I am really into mycology and the study of mushrooms and how they can change the world. Um, so Peter McCoy has a book called Radical Mycology. Um, let's see. Edible Forest Gardens is a great book if you want to learn how to forest garden. That is by Dave Jackie. Um, Gaia's Garden, like you mentioned, incredible book. Um, something that's really been inspiring to me, uh, it's a book that I, I cheer up reading sometimes. It's called Letters to a Young Farmer, and it's on food farming and our future. Um, and it's basically letters from a collective of inspirational farmers um, to young farmers and people that are interested in joining this journey towards a restorative and regenerative future. Um, incredible book it's right here. Yeah, but it has Michael Pollan, Raj Patel, um, Wendell Berry's in it, Alice Waters, um, Jill Salatin, or just to name a few. Um, yeah, the royalty. Just, just yeah, it's a collective of of pure awesomeness. So. And then documentaries before we move on to Chris. Documentaries, like I mentioned, I can't get enough of it. Um, 
just the ground. Uh, forks over knives is a good one on um, personal health. Um, what else? I'm a big audiobook person, so um, I know I could name a few after that. Yeah, you could name a hundred. I think I think you've given us plenty to start. Um, yeah. Chris, what are what are some of your favorite uh, resources, books, or documentaries? Uh, my favorite is Amber. I just go and he <laughs> <laughs> is the library. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm not much of a, a a reader, and so I'm always like, Amber, talk to me about this, or let's have a discussion on this thing, and then she'll tell me about something that she read and point me in the right direction. Okay. Um, I can't think. There was a there was a documentary that I saw on um, on Netflix the other day um, on a family that tried to start like a a big permaculture farm. Like right off the bat, they were like, we have ten acres, and we're just gonna. I think it was even more than ten acres. Um, and that was also just like cool to see like how that looks like when someone just kickstarts permaculture at such a large scale and then seeing like the like overwhelming amount of work that it is. Because uh, usually it starts off like small, like one acre and then expands and expands, and expands. Amber and I have seven and a half and we were like, we're like dying and we're like neglecting half of it right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing about farming too. I mean, it's just that it's, you know, it's every day. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. it doesn't sleep. Um, and so where can, uh, where can people find out more about uh, your guys's work? Yeah. So, so people... we have a, Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> we, ha we have a Instagram for our Yeovil garden. It's called permaculture Fresno. Um, we post videos and pictures of people, plants um, and tips, things like that. And you can also check out Fresno Metro Ministry, our website. If you Google that, um, you can see some of what we're doing. Chris and I have personal accounts too. If you want to check out those, we plant, we post plant stuff <laughs> sometimes. There's nothing better than seeing plants on Instagram. It's a good, it's a good reprieve from most of the stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you both for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, what, 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 what did we say? Maybe go go eat some small rainbow chard this week. That's your that's your challenge. If you can find it, that's going to be the challenge is to find it. But if you can find it, definitely eat it. <laughs> so thank and you. And you both. can find it. Yeah, you can find it at Chris's backyard nursery project that he's starting, where he has seedlings for sale. If you're interested. Perfect. Absolutely <laughs> perfect. All right. Thanks, there guys. You thank, thank you. you. For listening folks stay tuned for our next episode we'll be interviewing jessica mast foss until next time have a safe and wonderful week <laughs>